this semester we have had the opportunity of having quite a few wonderful conversations around human sexuality and what it means to have a distinctively Christian view of the body. And we've been deeply embedded, embedded to the work of uh, John Paul II. I want to once again show you the books. Uh, this is the, uh, the book that mostly we've been talking about by John Paul II, uh, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. This is about an 800-page book. I recommend it during your Christmas break. Um, we also have uh, those who have worked to the Theology of the Body Explained, and then there is the Theology of the Body for Beginners. Uh, there's probably like, you know, a idiot's guide out there somewhere, but it's, it's out there. It's nice. Um, we have spent just this semester uh, discussing these issues, but of course, as you know, I shared, John Paul II developed uh, this as weekly homilies for five years. So our goal has been simply to kind of orient you to kind of the broad theological landscape of this issue, or the, all of these issues, to um, open up conversations in our community. Some wonderful conversations. I've had more conversations the last semester with many of you than I've had my first seven years here uh, about these type of issues. It's been wonderful. And then thirdly, to give you confidence in the biblical vision. Uh, that's been kind of the purpose of this, and we hope this is not the end of it, but the beginning of a lot of wonderful new conversations. In my experience, uh, you know, when it comes to discussing this with the world, in a larger culture, you can only state what you are against about three times before it becomes very annoying. And so I think uh, as Christians, we have to move to a larger plane. What are we for? What is the Christian vision? What is, what is it that we're so deeply committed to? And much of this has been about exploring that uh, to try to get us to sing a better song and to spark these new conversations. All of these messages are available at my website, uh, timothytenet.com. You can go to the listen, they're all there, maybe shared, et cetera, for those who weren't able to be part of all of those. And eventually, this will be developed into a seedbed series. We're going to uh, take out some of the theological language and move into like, discussing laity and have this as a Sunday school series uh, for our churches throughout the, uh, kind of the Wesleyan world. So we have a lot of plans for this beyond this semester, which will be unfolding in the years to come. Uh, the scope of what we've covered has been quite vast. I only mentioned a few in passing, but we have really, uh, we've talked a lot about how God's original plan remains intact, despite all of the, the fall and human sinfulness and hardness of heart. We've explored a lot about the sacramental nature of the body, what John Paul II calls the ethos of the body. Uh, we talked about the primordial sacrament of marriage in the, uh, in the garden that God created, that we are, our bodies are not merely biological entities, but theological or spiritual entities, which has huge implications for us. Um, what it means to be an image bearer in the world, and that every one of you, uh, you're all icons of Christ in the world. You bear his authority in the world. That has a huge implications that we explored we talked about marriage uh, today. It's about personal fulfillment. It's about uh, economic arrangements, you know, economic conveniences, etc. Uh, it's all about commodity. Uh, we have reminded us all that marriage in the Bible is a covenantal uh, scheme of things. It's about what it means to be part of uh, union, self-donation, joining God as, as joining Him and creators of the world, co-creators with God in the world. Many wonderful themes that we brought out there. 
We did talk about some of the um, negative things. Uh, we did have to delve, we spoke mostly on kind of the positive vision, but we did talk about how things that we have to face and deal with in ways that we've been sucked into the wrong narrative. We talked a lot about, for example, in the, uh, the autonomous solitude. We, this was the whole theme on our, uh, our rediscovering our original nakedness, is what John Paul II calls it, in the garden. Uh, what is it meant to remember what it was like before the shaming happened, all the shaming that gets brought in with sin. Had some very rich discussions about that. We discussed the role of uh, autonomous solitude, how the gospel pulls us or summons us into communion with the triune God. Uh, we have been taught a song of autonomous solitude, which brings us into isolation. This has led to, among many things, the war of the genders that is so common today, even in the church. It's led us to um, a lot of zero-sum game conversations. So if you, if you say something positive about marriage, it's a denigration of singleness. Or if you lift up singleness, it's a denigration of marriage, or you don't believe in marriage. All of that uh, kind of zero-sum conversations are part of that autonomous solitude. All of us are, of course, from families. Everybody in this room, we're all from families. And part of the inward gaze has asked us to look at ourselves by ourselves. I mean, it used to be when I traveled and worked in India, people saw themselves as part of a massive network of extended families. And I used to apologize that we only saw our nuclear family. But today, even that has been taken from us. And we're left in our complete solitude in the destructive ways. We talked openly about some of the issues of, of lust and of self-loathing that goes on that is sometimes and can be tragically destructive even in our own community. And that's been very healthy for us. It's a good conversation about that as well. By the way, uh, for those who are new students, when you walk out of Estes Chapel, you'll notice that, that Charles Wesley is a large man. Have you noticed that? It's a huge theological statement we made. Because think about it, whenever you move statues for people, you, you thought that like this, uh, what is it now called, photoshopping is a new thing? Photoshopping is just the what your generation does, but this has always been done. Whenever you produce, you know, like statues of people, that's how they always look kind of sharp and crisp, you know, 25 years old. And uh, we, we thought, what if we presented a, a statue of Charles Wesley at his prime and his, and his musical genius when he when he was writing hundreds of hymns, and when he, all those, what we sang today, when he wrote that, what, would he, what did he look like? Well, he looked like that. And to me, it's, it's beautiful to behold, because it's, it's actually our way of saying, you know, that's what God's people look like. They look in all, they look all, come in all kinds of types and sizes, and Charles Wesley was on the little large side. Praise be to God for that. We dedicated an entire series. We actually, the, 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 uh, the sculptor said to me, we actually gave a picture of Charles Wesley at that age, and we did a duplicate. He said, you know what, I can go in there, I can change the sculpture, and I can, I can, you know, I don't know, slim him down. I said, no, don't do that. He wasn't like that. Okay. Um, we had a whole uh, time on celibacy and singleness, and the the special, amazing call, the high calling of celibacy and singleness, and those who anticipate the new creation already uh, in the marriage of the Lamb, where there'll be no marriage or given in marriage. 
We talked about the egalitarian complementarian debate and how wrongly headed the whole thing is because it actually misses both beautiful points that everyone in this room is an icon of Christ. You have the authority to represent Christ in the world. If you're a woman, because of that, you, you have the invitation because you are an icon of Christ to lovingly, powerfully engage in any ministry God's called you to because you're an icon of Christ. But all of us are also called to be wonderfully reflect the vulnerability of Christ in the world. And we all submit to so many things in the world for the sake of God's plans and his work in the world in ways that are very, very important, men and women. We also explored the role of art and media and the kind of powerful ways that art and media have often fragmented people and have torn, especially women, the inner beauty of their life from their bodies in ways that are very destructive in our world. And we reminded us of the power of Christian images and Christian media and art. And I hope that many of you will engage that in powerful ways. And one of the themes of this whole series is one that we don't want to do is get into an escapist mode. We want to get into a really powerful engagement mode, engage in a new vision. And that involves everything, including art, media, art, etc. To re to respond to the what we call the disincarnation of man, the disincarnation of woman. Uh, this morning's final session, I want to share some pastoral advice with you in terms of talking to people about this issue and ways in which we as a church could do a lot better pastorally. First of all, um, there'll be those who say to you, and have certainly said to me, this whole discussion about sexual, sex, uh, same-sex marriage and homosexual ordination and gender reassignment, all of that is, quote, much ado about nothing. They argue that this is a distraction. I call this the distraction from mission argument. Essentially, this point, their point is that this term, uh, homosexuality or whatever, does not appear in the Apostles' Creed, doesn't appear in the Nicene Creed. Jesus never uses the word. Um, you know, the Old Testament also tells us to not plant our field with two kinds of seed or whatever, so... What's the big deal about all of this? Well, first, we, must, we hope we've learned in this series that the body is an amazing spiritual icon by God. And therefore, it's very, very important to the church to get this right. This has been an issue that has absolutely destroyed church after church. I mean, I expect that in the Baptist church, they're like prone to, they, they like to divide. But when you find churches like the Anglicans, they're the most like, like, divisively resistant group in the planet. Even they've blown up over this issue. Uh, not to mention the Presbyterian Church uh, has blown up over this issue with all the split P's, the PCA, OP's, EP's. I mean, on and on and on it goes. The, uh, so this is not something that's like a minor issue. It's a huge issue that's been very destructive. The creeds don't address ethical issues. It's not their function. We don't find any ethical issues uh, in the creed in that way. The creed is about a historical document with theological implications. The creed says, for example, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't list any of those sins. It, we believe in the forgiveness of them. So the creed does not mention uh, homosexuality. It doesn't mention murder, rape, embezzlement, or anything else. And Jesus, of course, uh, in Matthew 19, unambiguously affirms the original creational vision of man and woman uh, being brought together in marriage. And so Jesus actually does affirm the positive vision. One of the things you have to also watch out for in this debate 
is that there is a reemergence of Manichaeanism in the modern-day church, which actually hurts us on both points on this issue. It's a denigration of the body, that's one thing, but also it drives a wedge between Jesus and Paul. And so the New Testament can be full of sin lists. If Jesus doesn't mention it, it doesn't count. And so to be very, very careful that we remember the, the whole Bible, you know, passe, uh, grafe, theoponoustos, you know, all scriptures inspired by God. And we don't simply, we don't accept that kind of separation. The second argument you'll hear a lot is, um, you know, why in the world has the church focused so much on this issue to the neglect of so many other issues where we seem to be comparatively silent? Have you ever heard this statement made? Uh, why would we fight homosexuality with so much energy and never even mention it seeing pervasive sins like greed or covetousness or stealing? But my answer to that is, to my knowledge, no one in the entire church, anywhere in the entire world, has tried to take covetousness or greed or stealing off of the sin list and put it on the sacrament list. It's not happened. Uh, if someone, the church actually universally condemns sins like greed all over the world, it's just not a point of debate. If someone tried to take greed off of Colossians 3, 5 to 9, one of the sin list, and say, well, greed has for centuries been a sin for which Christ died. It's a sin that was nailed to the cross. We're now taking that sin of greed off of the cross and make it into a means of grace or a sacrament. We'd be all up in arms and splitting over that. We'd have like greed factions in the church. There have, you know, we hear a lot about you know, gender reassignment. What I think is a challenge is doctrinal reassignment. That's the danger of the church today. We're taking what was a means of condemnation, making it into a means of grace. Taking things off the sin list, put it onto a sacrament list. That's why the church has focused on this issue. The third argument you'll hear is what I call the agree to disagree uh, position. The UMC loves this answer to everything, but it's in many churches as well. In this view, in this kind of vision of how you deal with these issues, it's not about revelation. One of the things, I had the privilege for 11 years being on the front lines of observing the whole demise of the PC USA over this issue. I'm not a Presbyterian. I've never been a Presbyterian. I never will be a Presbyterian. But who knows, I shouldn't say, but whatever. The point being, I'm not in their movement, but I was able to observe it because I was with a lot of Presbyterians where I'm a previous appointment. And what was so interesting, they spent hours haggling over text. They argued endlessly over the meaning of Greek words in certain passages of Scripture. Endlessly. In our movement, it's like never discussed. You just never hear anybody really actually, almost be refreshing if someone said, well, let's really, let's discuss you know, these texts and some of the use of words in the New Testament. What you actually find in our world, in the Wesleyan world in general, is the church has become kind of an adjudicator in the midst of a sea of human preferences. Conviction has been overturned by preferences. Divine revelation has been supplanted by personal perspectives. And truth has been uprooted by experience. Our movement loves the word perspective. We love the word experience. We're not quite so clear on the word revelation. So truth has been kind of lost in this very, very miry pit, and human sexuality is that way. And the result is 
They all kinds of ways to advocate multiple versions of truth. Uh, the church will accommodate it as a market share. This is a commodity answer to this problem. What happens is you say, well, we'll accommodate every market share we have in the church on this issue. So now even sexual morality is driven by commodity, supply and demand. It may be you know, wrong in this church, but it's right in that church. It's, this is post-modernity, view of truth, set up shop in the church. So as Christians, we have to resist this because when that, once that happens, then of course the whole of Scripture is out the window. The fourth and final argument that you hear is that we're portrayed as angry and bigoted and Jesus is so warm and embracing. And this, is, of course, is the niceness test. In, in today's world, you know, it's very important to be nice, among all else. And it's really important to remember, this is actually one of these examples where there's a, there's a lot of truth to this one, that we must be committed to kindness and gentleness as fruits of the Spirit. The church has not always been kind and gentle on this issue. The church has often failed miserably in this area. I don't think this is as a big a problem in your generation as mine, but it's certainly been a big challenge. We should have a zero tolerance for bullying people. It starts at around 10 or 12 years old in our, you know, with our children in schools and all of this, and people that are doing, going through genuine struggles. And we have to be, have no tolerance for this, for bullying, for harsh and hateful attitudes, attacks, etc. We, and this is where our text comes in. We should never expect the world to live according to Christian ethics. I mean, we always can hope for this. There was a day when adultery, fornication, sodomy were all against the law in this country, but none of that is true today. So we live in a world, we live in a different context. We are on the prophetic margins. We're not in the cultural center. And that means that we approach the culture in a different way we recognize they will simply not accept uh, our theology, our beliefs. And the main strategy that we have adopted as a church on this issue is what is known as, and you've all heard it, love the sinner, hate the sin. This has been kind of the mantra that we, um, that we do. And of course, this plays itself out like the UMC, has, this is their, our official position where it says on the one hand, all persons are of sacred worth, that's the love the sinner part, but homosexuality is incompatible with Christian truth, that's the hate the sin part. The problem is, as you well know, the church neither understands or, nor accepts that distinction. It's totally inco inconceivable to them what that means. So this is something that we understand, and it, has, it does have value to us, has moral value to us, a lot of moral value, but it doesn't have... It's not comprehensible to the world around us. In our, we live in a context where any judgment about sin is regarded as judgmental. So it doesn't matter how kindly you say this, how gently you say it, it'll be viewed as hate speech. All right, so that puts a challenge for us as Christians. What do we do on this? Well, this is where, where Paul, the text comes in, because Paul's dealing with some very old, uh, very, in some ways, shocking sins, uh, incestuous sins in this text that are go beyond even what we're talking about. So even, if even there, this is Paul's advice, it's good advice for all of us. Paul reminds the church and us of a kind of a dual challenge for us. 
he said, I didn't mean that when I was told, when we had this stand about immorality, I didn't mean that this was mean you wouldn't have contact with the world or that you would judge the world. No, no, no. How we would lose our witness if we did that. So on the one hand, Paul advocates absolute, I would even use the phrase extravagant love toward unbelievers. In everything, I mean, whatever you can think of that would demonstrate your amazing embrace of them as people created in the image of God. And your generation, I think, gets that, actually. That we, we are called to love people unconditionally. If you, if you love unbelievers conditionally, we're not mirroring the love of Christ into the world. Christ did not love us unconditionally. That's why Paul says, while you're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't conditional in our response. It's based on he does. He loves you. He loves me because of who he is. So on the one hand, we have this amazing, extravagant, unconditional love of the world where we don't say, well, we'll only love you if you agree to this or that or the other. There is no list like that. We're not called to that. That includes the Syrian refugee as well. It includes all kinds of things where we are tempted to say this is an other. But on the other hand, Paul says, when it comes to the inside the church, we must be very clear about what it means to be in a Christian identity. That's to say the church must recapture church discipline. We've lost so much of this in the church, and yet, amazingly, our movement, the Wesley movement, was the greatest at this. This is our great strength, historically, was that we exercised church discipline. That's why we grew. That's why we uh, were able to evangelize the, the country, was because we understood church discipline. And so the Christian movement was distinctive. Right now, the church has lost its distinctiveness in the culture, and we have to remain our distinctiveness. So this becomes a big, a big challenge. So the way we do that, in terms of how we address the world, is we have to take the advice of this whole series, which is stepping back and addressing things at the largest frame. The culture will want us to like narrow things down. You know, are you for or against homosexual, you know, whatever? Are you, are you, what they hear is, do, are you for or against the homosexual? And so we've, we're, already, we're already lost before we even have a chance to open our mouths. So the biblical call to us, I think, is to realize the whole landscape, both of the brokenness, which spans pornography, adultery, fornication, everything else that's out there, it's massively broken in our society, and then the biblical vision, the positive, glorious vision, which we have to, uh, to embody. Today, you hear a lot about the LGBT community and the LBGTQIA, right? Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual community. The, the letters are growing. Now, that's really important. You know the story of Facebook. It started out male-female. Today, it's 58 choices plus fill-in-the-blanks. I just wrote down a few of these that related to this topic here. That I didn't want to send you, give you all 58. We don't have time for a Eucharist. But transgender, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, pangender, bigender, there's just a few of the 58. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you what we've been saying all throughout this series. This, we are not at the end of something. We are at the beginning of something. You must not see this as the, like the end, the final stroke of the sexual revolution of the 60s. 
The sexual revolution of the 60s was the doorway to bring this in, that this is not about, I can just put it bluntly, this is not about sex. This issue is about the body. This, that's what this issue is about. We must recognize, and you get a lot of this in the church today, well, if we just solve this issue, everything will be okay. No, it's not okay. Because this issue is not, it's not about who can have sex with whom. That is the presenting issue of a more deeper point, which is before us, the elimination of all gender boundaries, the assumption of gender identity, even those markers physiologically given to us through creation are now being eliminated. Now there is therefore, this is really about our fight for the Christian body and the fact that the body is good and the body can be trusted. And that's what lies before us. So we end this series where we started at the beginning. We're engaged in a 50-year struggle, 50-year work before us. I will not live to see the end of it. Many of you will. Some of you will. Thanks be to God for that. You will be the faithful bearers that will reinsert into the Christian vision uh, the beautiful truth of Scripture on these points. We have a lot of work to do, the roll of our sleeves. We have to demonstrate the interconnectedness of issues. The Roman Catholics can help us a lot on that issue. We have a lot of work to do to, find, to, to live into these realities. I mean, what the world does not need is a better argument from us. What they need is a better demonstration from us. That we would quietly build beautiful families, beautiful church communities, beautiful friendships, beautiful ways the body is honored, that we don't get involved in the cycle of shaming. We don't get involved in the cycle of how we tear women apart from their bodies and their inner beauty of their life. That men in this community and even pastors say no to pornography. See, that's all the work we have to do. It's so easy to condemn the world, but we have all this unfinished work in our lives. That We have to do our work. So when the world sees us, they'll go, wow. Look at that vision. And it's that vision which will eventually, in the time, uh, compel the world that the church is the glorious bride of Christ. And it still has an amazing message for the world that is not just about how to get saved eschatologically, but the Christian view has always been holistic. We have a vision for the whole of life, and we'll never relinquish it because we're Christians. Thanks be to God. Amen.